Go ahead and take your Bible with me and turn to Luke chapter 12 this morning. We're in, in Luke's gospel, the 12th chapter. I'm going to read verses 13 through 21 for us. The heading in your Bible, if you're reading the ESV like I am, says the parable of the rich, the rich fool. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there are a handful in the back there. Feel free to stand up and grab one. It would be uh, it would be great for you to see the words that I'm about to read in front of you, and I'll refer to them several times throughout the course of our time together this morning. Um, this is a, a, a way in which men, we can lead our families by having our Bible open in front of us as often as, as possible. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there are a handful uh, on the table back there underneath the offering box. Um, feel free to pick one up at the end of the service. Uh, that's our gift to you. Um, and if you're sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with someone in your life right now and they don't have a copy of the Bible, feel free to pick one of those up and give that away as well. Luke chapter 12, I'm going to read verses 13 through 21. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Fairness is an idea that we latch on to really early in life. Older siblings may, uh, may receive a privilege like a later bedtime, only to be met with a younger sibling bemoaning that it isn't fair. We look at others around who seem to work half as hard as we do, but they seem to have far fewer problems. One man may have a basement with three inches of water in it, while another man sits with several feet of water underneath his feet, reeling in walleyes. Now tell me which one that you would hope to be. Both men have water under their feet, but the reality is something that a wise man once said, this is absolutely true, the only difference between salad and garbage is timing. And, and, and sorry. And we want, we want the feet or the water under our feet uh, when there are walleyes in it, and not when it's in our basement. So, how do we process things when they seem unfair? How do we process through things when they seem unfair? This is the lead-in to this parable. It's set up by a conversation with a man in the crowd who. Uh, who speaks to Jesus. He felt like things weren't fair for him. And so he makes a demand. He doesn't even ask a question here, but he makes a demand. He said, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. 
calls out to Jesus to tell his brother to settle a legal dispute. Now, it was, it was common, common practice for someone in society to go to a rabbi like Jesus or a teacher, a Jewish teacher, to settle a legal dispute. This was, again, common practice. It's relatively safe to assume, I think, that the man who makes this demand of Jesus is the younger brother. And during this time, it was customary that the oldest brother would receive, a, uh, would receive double an inheritance of what any of his younger brothers would receive. If there were two, he would get double. If there were three, he would get double of the younger two. And so this man was owed something, probably, and he most likely had a legitimate gripe. But we find out very quickly in Jesus' response, response to this man, we find out that Jesus' primary concern isn't with settling the dispute that this man has, but addressing the underlying problem with the problem that this man has. And so Jesus turns, if you look in verse 15, and he said to them, he opens this up to everyone in earshot. He was having a one-on-one dialogue with this man in the crowd, but then he opens up the, uh, the conversation to everyone. He provides those within earshot the truth that they need to rightly process this man's perceived predicament. If I was in that position, I'd be like, yeah, that guy, he needs something. He, 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 he's owed, if, it's, if he's the younger brother, he's owed just a portion of what the older brother is owed, but he is owed something. But again, Jesus isn't, isn't interested in that. He's interested with the underlying problem, as is seen in verse 15. He says, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. What Jesus is saying is, by making this demand, he's actually devaluing his life while making possessions appear more more valuable than they actually are. This man needed to have a reformed understanding of what life is. And so Jesus tells a parable to illustrate two concepts which further explain this statement that he makes. Two concepts. He tells this parable. He wants us to get both of these. The first concept is covetousness, and we see that right there in the text. We'll unpack that first. But the second is an idea that is implied here, and that's contentment. Contentment. But we'll begin with covetousness, because this is what Jesus says in verse 15, that we should be on our guard against. Now, this shouldn't be a surprise to us that Jesus would say this because we find this embedded in the Ten Commandments. The last commandment, the Tenth Commandment in Exodus 20.17 reads, You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or, he says, anything that is your neighbor's. Jesus' words here in Luke 12 actually echo what's communicated in the Ten Commandments. You shall not covet anything that is your neighbor's, is what Moses brings down from the mountaintop. Jesus says, be on your guard against all covetousness. We have to ask ourselves the question, what does it mean to covet? What is this idea? It's not a word that I think we use all that often in our society, in our day-to-day life. 
So what does it mean to covet? And I'm confident that you probably have some sort of understanding of this word, but let's, let's just work towards a definition together. Simply put, to covet is to desire something that you don't have. To desire something that you don't have. But if we're to consider a biblical definition of covet, I think we would have to take into consideration that whenever covetousness is talked about or spoken about in Scripture, it's thought as a gateway to sinful action taken against God and others. It's seen as a gateway to sinful action taken against God and against others. Uh, just consider one of the examples given in the Ten Commandments. The, the, or the, the, in, the, in the 10th commandment, the last thing that's said in the 10th commandment is anything that's your neighbor's. So anything that's your neighbor's, but the, it gives us some examples out of the gate. The second thing that comes up in Exodus 20.17 is uh, an understanding of the reality that we should not covet our neighbor's wife. So the underlying concept contained in this example is lust. Lust is a desire for someone or something that is forbidden by God. Someone or so, You see how that's different from covetousness. When, when we talk about coveting, it's not something that's forbidden, but it's just something that doesn't belong to you. With lust, it's something that's explicitly for, uh, forbidden by God himself. So if your neighbor has a wife, if you live in a house and you have a neighbor and that neighbor has a wife or that neighbor has a husband and you indulge a fantasy about what it might be like to be with that person. You've emotionally abandoned your spouse that you've pledged your life to. You've sinned against your neighbor, you've sinned against your neighbor's spouse, and you've sinned against your own spouse. Indulging covetousness is a, in the form of lust is sin. And sin, as we know, well know, spending time in the, the book of Genesis, sin, if left unchecked, leads to more sin. King David was supposed to be at war when he saw Bathsheba on the rooftop. If left unchecked, coveting your neighbor's wife will cause your feet to carry you to places and your eyes to look at or to wander to places forbidden by God. And we must also be reminded what, what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5.28 when he says, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery in his heart. So covetousness causes us to see others as adversaries or rivals, which breeds envy. This is the, this is the problem. This is the, the sin that gives way to more sin and covetousness. David saw Bathsheba on the rooftop and it made him a murderer when he found out whose wife it was. Covetousness starts out in the secret places of our hearts, but has the ability to grow into outward expression. James 1, uh, the, the book of James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, uh, give us, the, uh, give us the, exactly how this happens. James writes, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So, we're not even to the parable yet. This is Jesus' warning right out of the gate, which is going to be illustrated by the parable itself. So look at verse 16 with me. Jesus sets up the parable. He says, And he told them a parable, saying, 
The land of a rich man produced plentifully. Jesus puts the the crowd that he's speaking to in the place of the observer here. He wants us to, you and I, and the people he was speaking to, to observe a rich man. He wants us to observe a rich man who has has a good year. His land produces plentifully. The rich man Jesus imagines would have been part of a extremely small and wealthy upper class. Probably less than one percent of the first century of first century Palestinians would fall into this class. They were wealthy. They owned land, and this class had no need to work the ground themselves. They had other people do that for them because they were wealthy. As a result, as it is in our culture, as a result, it was relatively popular for people in that day and age to look at that wealthy upper class and to express envy for the ease of life that they had. Again, we do the same thing in our culture. We subscribe to Architectural Digest and we look at the homes of wealthy celebrities and wonder what it would be like if our income was doubled or if we it magically rose to seven figures next year. This is, the, this is tantamount to what's going on with uh, Jesus' words here asking his hearers to imagine a rich man. This envy, and we as Christians, need to guard ourselves against it. And again, it's a sin that doesn't get talked about a lot. Envy isn't something that gets talked about a lot. It's even become, for many of us, just culturally acceptable, just to talk about your neighbor and what he has that's more than us, and then to say, man, I wish that that would be mine. We indulge it more often than we probably realize. So the rich man is someone that would be envied openly by Jesus' hearers. Now note also, though, before we move on, that the rich man is rich before his land produces plentifully. He's rich before his land produces plentifully. The The descriptor, rich, comes before we understand even what happens. The plentiful production is on top of his already uh, exorbitant wealth. Jesus calls this man rich before anything even happens in the parable. He has a great year, though. (laughs) The land produced plentifully, Jesus says, and this rich man then finds himself in a predicament. He doesn't have a place to store his crops. So what does he do? His solution is to tear down his existing barns and build bigger ones to house the harvest. And tear down the barns, build bigger ones. And again, Jesus' hearers would know what this meant, what this looked like. Archaeologists have found massive silos for grain in the north side of Galilee, just a few miles north of where Jesus grew up in Nazareth. These silos would have been owned by the individuals that made up this wealthy upper class that Jesus is talking about, that this rich man that Jesus imagined would fall into. And so the rich man makes a plan to build bigger barns and take it easy. Look at verse 19 with me, what he says. He says, And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. This phrase is one that you've probably heard and and one that Jesus' hearers would take and they would think about something in the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 22 where wealthy and leisure Jews um, would say in uh, Isaiah 22, 13, uh, they would be described as saying, 
Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. But you'll see what's different about these two phrases. They acknowledge that tomorrow is their death, and so they should, they should uh, eat and drink and be merry. The rich man in the parable doesn't acknowledge that his death may be imminent. He says, for many years I'll eat and relax and drink. And so he, he's presumptuous about what's coming. He fails to reckon with the fleeting nature of his personal wealth and this plentiful harvest that he has. But again, the parable shows us that things are about to get serious. Things are about to get serious for this man. Not, his, his life wouldn't end tomorrow, as the, the Jews in Isaiah 22.13 would say, but his life would end before the current day even expires. And what he thought would be the source of his eating and drinking and merriment would be left to someone else. This is what Jesus said in verse 20. The things that you have prepared, he says, Whose will they be? Now, this is a rhetorical question, and it leads us to answer, well, they're not the rich man's because he's dead. The reality is we don't know who they would be left to. We don't know of anyone else that the rich man has. Maybe it's just going to go to the government. We don't know. But someone else is going to enjoy these. If you remember last year in our time spent in the book of Ecclesiastes, we saw this theme come up over and over again. Acknowledge that your life is a vapor. Because when it ends, the things that you have right now will be enjoyed by someone else. Maybe it's your children, but again, maybe it's the government. So Jesus' primary concern here is that the crowd, and subsequently we, as the readers of this, don't give ourselves to coveting what someone like the rich man has. We put ourselves in the place of the observer, and then we look and we say, we should not covet this man. Because what he is seeking contentment in is or can be ripped away without a moment's notice. Jesus says that life is more than the accumulation of wealth and material. So that leads us to ask, how do we battle covetousness in our own life? If we are prone to covet, then what should we do? And the answer is simply to seek contentment. To seek contentment. In verse 21, Jesus concludes the parable, and this is what he's saying, essentially. He says, So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. These two things. Don't lay up treasure for yourself on earth and be rich towards God. Now that idea needs to be fleshed out a little bit. And so we should not lay up earthly treasures for ourselves, but we can from that statement, reasonably gather what Jesus means when he says, be rich towards God. To be rich towards God is rejecting the notion that earthly treasure can provide us with contentment, but rather finding contentment in God himself. So consider practically what contentment looks like. Three things I want to give to you. Three practical contentment principles that come from Scripture. The first is this. Contentment will come through thinking about ourselves less. Look at how many times the rich man talks about himself in the parable. Verse 17, 18, and 19. The only pronoun he uses is the first-person singular pronoun. He thought to himself, 
what should I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. Again, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. Verse 19, and I will say to my soul, or your translation might say self. I will say to myself, self, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. So, what we see here is it's clear that the rich man is only considering himself and his own interests. So Jesus is simply saying, don't think about yourself only. Covetousness will flow out of self-centeredness, whereas contentment will flow out of Christ-centeredness. A life that is centered on Christ will demonstrate what Paul writes in Philippians 2, verses 4 and 5. Where Paul writes, Let each of you not look only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. For those who are in Christ, we have the mind of Christ. Our mind has been reformed into the mind of Christ. It has been renewed. This is a grace that comes through the regenerative work of God on our behalf in Christ Jesus. You can't think about yourself outside of Christ. But in Christ, you are, in fact, free to think about yourself less. For us who are in Christ, we have the mind of Christ. And that works itself out, that mind, considers our own interests less than the interests of others. The second thing I would say practically here related to contentment is that contentment comes through having less. Now, what I'm not saying here is that we need to give away everything that we currently have, although Jesus did call the rich young ruler to give away everything and to follow him. But I'm not suggesting that you need to have less than you have currently but to consider that the world is telling you that you should have more than what you currently have and that you can find contentment there. So what we could practically say is contentment comes through having less than the world is telling you that you need to be content. And it seems a bit counterintuitive because we're marketed too in this way over and over and over again. We're continually being told that contentment comes through having money and things. But in our having less, we become more dependent on God. Take that into consideration the next time you are making a purchase. The rich man in the parable seems content. He just ignores the fact that his contentment is coming from something that could be ripped away at a moment's notice, mainly the the thing that's in his barns or that he needs to build bigger barns for. And it was ripped away at a moment's notice, not even at the end of the day. His life was demanded of him. It was required of him and they became someone else's. So what Jesus is not doing here is condemning wealth and material, but he is warning us of putting too much stock into it. He's warning of us putting too much stock into it. We're all prone to it. We have a tendency towards it. He's warning about letting it out of its proper place. Like water in the basement, not in the lake, so is money and material that is that is relied upon for contentment. C.S. Lewis once wrote this, Our best havings are wantings. When you are in earthly need, it is easy to understand that you have all that you need eternally. 
Because there's no competing love. There's no competing love. Don't look at people who have more than you in an earthly sense. Rather, fix your eyes above that. On your heavenly Father who did not spare his own Son, but graciously gave us all things needed for an eternity of uninterrupted joy and uninterrupted contentment. The third thing is this. Contentment comes through exercising generosity. I think this is implied in what Jesus says about building bigger barns. Like if he had access, what was he going to do with them? His solution, again, was self-centered. But what Jesus wants to push us towards is, is being generous. If your barns are overflowing because of a plentiful year, be generous. Don't build another barn taking only yourself into consideration. Jesus says that we shouldn't lay up treasure for ourselves. He says don't hoard, instead give. By doing so, you demonstrate that your contentment is not found in earthly money or material. Of course, and I just, I just said this, but of course this idea of generosity flows out of the reality that God himself is a generous God. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? It is a generous God that freely gives up his own son to act as a substitutionary sacrifice for us. We can conceive of no greater act of generosity. We have become the beneficiaries of the greatest act of generosity ever given. If you put all of the the acts of generosity for all of time in a thimble, God's grace shown to us in sending Jesus would be the ocean. When we display radical generosity, we glorify God by proclaiming that he is our source of contentment, not earthly accumulations. So in conclusion then, just a couple of takeaways. Practically, we see these practical understandings of what contentment is or how it practically works itself out in the lives of those who are in Christ. But a couple of takeaways, the first that is strictly theological and must be understood in order to to truly be content. We have to understand that we can only truly be content in Christ. We can only be truly content in Christ. Again, the rich man seeks contentment in his wealth. He seeks contentment in his riches and in a plentiful year. He says, I'm going to store this up for years upon years and I will live off of off of what's given here. We can only be truly content in Christ, however, because Christ is the thing that cannot be torn away from us, like earthly wealth and material. You and I cannot generate, though, the proper mindset. You can't do it that will allow for us to be content in this life. Again, you can always have something more. There's always something more out there to give yourself to the pursuit of Contentment can only be found in Jesus Christ. We need a renewed mind. We need what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. We need the mind of Christ in order to be content in Christ. This is what it means to be born again. What it means to be regenerated. What it means to be a new creation. For those who are in Christ, you are now set free from seeking contentment. This is the freedom that Paul talks about in the book of Galatians. For freedom you are set free. You are free from seeking contentment in things that are not Jesus Christ. They places that can't provide it. 
you are free to find contentment in the only thing that can truly provide it, God himself. So if we, friends, are to be truly content, we must recognize that we've been set apart by the goodness of God in the the grace that flows to us through the person and work of Jesus Christ that has made us new creation in him. Secondly, though, the second takeaway that I want you to grapple with on our way out this morning is that earthly wealth should be rendered properly and held in its proper place. Earthly wealth should be rendered properly and held in its proper place. Um, Matthew 22, you know this, this interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees. The Pharisees are trying to trip Jesus up with his words, like get him caught and, on his words. And so they ask him a quick question. They say, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And I hope no one asked me that question today, but hopefully Jesus' answer will give us some some insight. So Matthew writes, though, after this, he says, But Jesus, aware of their malice, aware of the Pharisees' malice and trying to trip him up, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is on this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God, God's. What does that mean for us? The currency that we use, if you pull a dollar bill out of your pocket right now, has an image of a man on it. It has an image of a man on it. That which has the image of man on it should be given to men. It's that simple. In the case of Matthew 22, that's for taxes. Caesar's face is on the coin. Give it to Caesar to pay your taxes. But maybe for us, it's goods or services. Maybe it's, a, maybe it's a, your favorite charity. Render unto men that which bears the image of man. But, Jesus says, render unto God that which bears the image of God. Friends, what bears the image of God? That's us. Our lives bear the image of God. And so we are to render our lives to a God. We owe him our lives. We bear the image of God. And we owe him our lives. Friends, you can freely give away the image of man when you know that you bear the image of God. You can freely reject the understanding of the accumulation of wealth which bears the image of man when you know that you bear the image of God. We, can, we find contentment not in carrying around men's faces the images of Washington or Lincoln or Jefferson or Jackson or Grant or Franklin in our wallets, but rather carrying the image of God in our very being. And so my hope is this week that we would together see worldly wealth as fleeting and refuse to seek our contentment there, desiring not what others have, but being rich towards God as those who have been redeemed by the steadfast love of him who sent his own son to die. And may we, as a result, exercise our freedom 
to render our lives holy to him. Let's pray.